It's Friday, August 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It's a Green Friday this week on the podcast. First, Senator Bernie Sanders has unveiled his Green New Deal to fight climate change, and it's coming in at a whopping $16.3 trillion. It declares climate change a national emergency, transforms the country's energy system to rely on renewable energy for electricity and transportation by 2030, and complete decarbonization by 2050. Miranda Green, energy and environment reporter at The Hill, joins us for what's in the plan. Next, cannabis restaurants are coming to California, and if things go well, this could be a model you start seeing in other states. The soon-to-open Lowell Farms Cannabis Cafe will be pairing a farm-to-table meal with flower service, so you can pair that meal with the perfect strain. Even though the state has legalized recreational marijuana, running a cannabis restaurant is nothing like running a typical restaurant, and there are a lot more regulations to follow. Maura Judkis, reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for some of the creative ways this will all work. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We must transition away from fossil fuel, period, end of discussion. Building the new electric cars and high-speed rail systems that we need, weatherizing, retrofitting millions and millions of homes and buildings from one end of this country to the other. Joining us now is Miranda Green, energy and environment reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Miranda. Thanks for having me. Senator Bernie Sanders has released the largest climate plan of all the 2020 Democratic candidates. It's coming in at $16.3 trillion. I don't know if it has an official name, or, but it is very much modeled after the Green New Deal. Tell us a little bit about his plan and what he wants to change. So he is borrowing the name from the Green New Deal, which is a resolution he supported himself in the Senate. So this climate plan, which is largely mirrored off of that resolution and the kind of climate baby of Congressman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's a member of Congress, this plan is pretty momentous, all right? It is the most expensive proposal from any candidate in the field that we've seen so far. It is calling to do a lot of very kind of ambitious things, such as moving transportation and the electric grid to all renewable energy use by 2030, and then eliminating fossil fuels across the board by 2050. So his plan, which he just introduced today, comes at a time when climate change is becoming a really big issue at the Forefront. And obviously something Bernie Sanders himself has been talking about is the crisis affecting our population. And uh, this plan kind of puts all of the things he said about politics and, and a revolution and the need to address climate change into one. His plan is much more expensive than any of the other candidates. How does he plan to pay for this? Sanders' plan is the most expensive next to Inslee's. So Inslee was, you know, his plan had $9 trillion going towards combating climate change. Obviously, Sanders' plan is significantly higher than that. And, you know, the question of how... Will we actually pay for this is something that a lot of people are now digging into today. He has called for a bunch of different areas where that money could come from. Some of those areas are rolling back how much money we are using on military defenses. A lot of it is he wants to roll back what he calls money that is given to the fossil fuel industry that he says is you know unnecessarily propping up the industry. So he wants to eliminate those subsidies. He also wants to potentially increase corporate taxes and sue fossil fuel companies 
companies, which he says have gotten away with knowingly contributing greenhouse gas emissions for decades. Let's talk about how feasible this would be politically, because there's Republicans across the board, it seems like, are already opposed to the Green New Deal that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put forward. This is that plan and more. So it'd be really tough to really get any of this going, it seems like. Sanders has kind of got himself here caught in the middle of two issues, right? He is caught in the middle between wanting to please environmentalists and voters who are really concerned about the looming concept of climate change and that two degrees of warning that we've seen the UN climate report announced could be kind of a no turning back point. And a lot of people say that his ambitious plan here is doing the most to try to address that concern of that really shortcoming timeline. But at the same time, other critics are saying the amount of money that he's looking to invest here and the amount of kind of overarching changes that would have to happen to the economy, transportation sector, energy sector, jobs is just not something that'll be easy to get people behind, especially when it comes to Republicans who have balked just at the idea of the Green New Deal when it was introduced in Congress, who have kind of just recently started to kind of come around to the idea of climate change as a man-made concept and the fact that humans have played a role in it. So it's a big jump for them politically. I think a lot of people People are also concerned that it might turn off moderate Democratic voters who are looking to this and also saying that this is just really dramatic and potentially not feasible when there are all these other Democratic candidates that have also introduced their own versions of climate action reports. Sanders definitely, you know, it, it goes the farthest left. Yeah. And, and on the Democratic side, climate change is one of the top issues, especially uh, the further left you get, it, it becomes the top issue and how we're going to handle this over the course of many years. You know, everybody kind of puts this number 2050 on there. You know, a lot of stuff needs to get done by then. I think the UN had a report out that says if we don't get anything done by 2050, we're going to hit that point of no return. But there's a lot of ambitious things, uh, you know, modernizing the electrical grid. Uh, these are kind of things that will transform the country. And I think all the 2020 Democrats have signed on to some form of a Green New Deal. So really on the left, on, on the Democratic side, this is something that will be coming or will be attempted to be worked on at least. All the Democratic candidates have acknowledged the idea that climate action is something that they need to address if they are president. Some of them have said that they back the Green New Deal resolution, which, which was introduced in Congress. Others, they've rolled out their own versions of climate policy plans. Many of those individual climate policy plans have that 2050 deadline for doing something, whether it's 100% renewable energy on the electric grid by that date, or like Bernie Sanders, eliminating all fossil fuel use. What's so expensive about Sanders's plan is that he is kind of taking the most drastic way of going clean, right? So he is saying that he doesn't want to use nuclear energy at all in his plan, which has kind of been a debatable point among some of these issues. In his plan, not only will he not allow new nuclear reactors to be brought on, but he wants to get away with their permits when they come up. So that means a future where nuclear energy is not used at all to help with clean renewable energy, which is something that a lot of people are questioning is feasible because right now nuclear energy accounts for one fifth of all renewable energy in the United States. Additionally, his plan calls for actually creating more federal utilities, which is very pricely and costly. But his idea is that once the federal government has created those utilities, it can sell off the renewable energy it's created, and that in itself will help pay for the plans. Some critics would call them pie-in-the-sky ideas. 
backers of Bernie Sanders that have always supported his ambitious idea would call it part of that Sanders revolution, right? The the call that he says he want, wants to create this political revolution right. and this plan very much mirrors that. Miranda Green, energy and environment reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again. My name is Andrea Drummer, and I'm a cannabis chef. I take the cannabis and I infuse butters, tinctures, and oils at proper dosage, and then I use that to cook with. So you get elevated, or one would say high. Joining us now is Maura Judkis, reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Maura. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about cannabis restaurants. They're coming to California there's going to be bud tenders. There's going to be flower service. You can get all sorts of stuff. The hope is that you would also be able to get marijuana infused food, although that seems like it might be a little further off. But California has been in the forefront of marijuana legalization and recreational use. And they're hoping to make this restaurant, this cafe thing, kind of the first of its kind in hopes that these things might spread around all over the place. Tell us a little bit about your story and uh, the soon-to-open Lowell Farms Cannabis Cafe. So this is pretty groundbreaking in terms of what people are doing with cannabis. There have been a number of pop-up restaurants. There are some consumption lounges that are attached to dispensaries. But um, when Lowell Farms opens its cafe in West Hollywood, it will be the first full-service, open-to-the-public restaurant that serves a full meal plus cannabis. And they're going to be opening in early September. And, you know, they've had to jump through a lot of logistical hurdles to get this off the ground. It's called Lowell Farms Cannabis Cafe. The main partner in this is Lowell Herb Company, which has a bunch of celebrity backers, uh, Miley Cyrus, Chris Rock, Mark Ronson, Sarah Silverman, a lot of big names and a, a lot of money behind these ventures. I mean, one of the interesting things was that because of all the licensing and all, all the things that you need, it's going to be about $3 million for this restaurant to open. Yeah, it, it takes a lot of money to open one of these because there's a lot of lobbying. There were the license proposals, which were quite expensive. And there's a lot more expenses than running a typical restaurant. I think that's one thing people don't understand about these is that you have to have extra staff. You have to have 24-hour security. If it's a smoking lounge, you need these like very expensive vents to suck up the smoke and purify the air. There's just a lot that goes into it. And so that's why a big company like Lowell is well-positioned to do it. But there are also a number of of small entrepreneurs um, and smaller businesses that are working towards operating one of these restaurants as well. Describe how this cannabis cafe slash restaurant, everything, how it's going to work. You're going to be able to sit down, order a dish, and then somebody will bring you a joint that pairs with that dish. Yes, exactly. Basically, um, there will be two outdoor areas and one indoor area in the Lowell Cafe. Um, there's one area for people who aren't going to consume cannabis at all. Um, if someone just wants to come in for a coffee or a snack. Um, and then there are two areas where you'll be able to smoke or vape. There will also be a limited number of edibles that they'll have. And actually, there will be two different sets of waiters um, or servers. You'll have one person who will be serving you your food and then another person who will be serving you your cannabis. And they will be a little bit more highly trained. They'll be able to offer you really specific um, recommendations based on what you want to feel and, and what your level of experience and tolerance is. And that's by design, actually. It's part of the regulations that they've had to go through. Um, you need separate staff for both areas of the restaurant. 
this is going to be done in West Hollywood, California. And even the West Hollywood City Council has been very involved in all this and kind of suggesting and, and approving how to work with the regulations. Uh, basically, as you mentioned, you know, there's going to be a separate waiter, separate bills even for food and for cannabis. And that's part of it. You're basically housing two businesses under one roof. Exactly. Yeah. And the reason for that is that there is this big discrepancy between the state law and the West Hollywood local laws. And so um, West Hollywood created, they, they passed this ordinance and they essentially created this type of license where people would be able to serve cannabis and food together and eventually infuse the food. But that's actually not legal at the state level yet. And there is no cannabis cafe license at the state level. And the state actually doesn't permit people to serve food and cannabis together. And so the reason they've had to come up with all these loopholes is so that they're able to operate this business and still stay within the state law. And the, re- the way that they're doing that is essentially co-locating the two businesses under one roof. And so when you go to the Lowell Cafe, you're essentially going to a dispensary because that is what the state has licensed it as. And they will have more limited rules than other dispensaries in West Hollywood. You won't actually be able to take things out of the area. You'll have to consume them on site. And when you order food, you'll essentially be ordering delivery from the place next door, which is actually under the same roof. There's another restaurant that could be on its way soon. It's called Antidote. And they have another creative loophole for actually being able to infuse the cannabis into food. Because one of the problems is with food is that that stuff has to be prepackaged and tested before for quality assurance and whatnot. So for a kitchen to infuse fresh food right there in a kitchen, it's impossible to do. You can't have a regulator standing by 24-7 there. So tell us what the plan that Antidote would be using, what their loophole would be. Yeah, Antidote has a really clever plan. Um, What they are going to do when they open, and I think they're a little further off, they're planning for the spring of 2020, but they are planning to open a commissary kitchen that produces THC-infused sauces or dressings or oils or butters, like things, you know, chocolate for a dessert. And what you would do is, again, have those two co-located businesses under one roof, a cannabis business and the restaurant business. And from the cannabis business for Antidote, you would buy your butter or your oil or your sauce to go with your meal that you're ordering from the restaurant. And it would be prepackaged and tested already because they've made it and those things have a longer shelf life. And so it's kind of a way of infusing your food without actually infusing it on site. And by law, people have to open the package themselves. So you would order essentially a small bottle of salad dressing or a pat of butter and put it on the food yourself. What about some of the main concerns? Because in the way that cannabis affects people differently, their tolerances, dosage levels, everybody's a little different, especially when it comes to edibles. Are there concerns with this? Are there plans to tackle any of that? So the businesses are really aware of that. And I mean, it's, it's obviously in their best interest that guests don't overconsume, not just because it could get the restaurant in trouble, but also because they really want people to have a good experience and they want them to be regulars and come back often. And if someone gets too high and has like a really, really bad night, they're, they're going to be less inclined to come back. So it's in their best interest to make sure that people don't have too much. So those bud tenders, the people who are going to be helping people choose their cannabis, will kind of recommend a dose if people aren't very experienced or haven't had cannabis in a long time, they'll want you to start with a lower dose and then maybe amp it up if you aren't 
feeling anything, but they also know that edibles take a while to kick in. So they affect everyone differently. And I think that for people who are coming to these cafes for the first time and maybe are less experienced cannabis consumers, they're going to urge you to really consume it in moderation. And then as you continue to have experiences, then you can experiment with different things. But they really don't want people to be driving home if they are under the influence. They're going to help you get an Uber or a Lyft. They have security on site in case someone goes a little bit overboard and they have ways of kind of helping people calm down. What have they said about as far as turning tables over? Because if someone's in there getting high, they're relaxed, they might linger a lot longer. It might be harder to turn over tables. There's also this other thing of it's kind of like a, if you open a, a, a bottle of beer or a bottle of wine in a restaurant, you can't really take the leftover with you. So if you uh, get extra flour or something like that, that all has to stay there. So that's also kind of another uh, concern, maybe something that needs to be worked on. Yeah, yeah. That's something that um, I think from the city council, they're still kind of figuring out a solution to the problem of leftovers because some of the business owners here, they're worried that if someone buys something that's a little bit more formidable, like a like a whole chocolate bar or something that's really not a single serving thing, that you know if they can't take their leftovers home, they're going to feel kind of cheated. Either that or they'll take the entire edible and maybe go a little bit overboard. So that's something that they're still kind of working out between the businesses and the city. But there are a lot of other ways, too, that it's really not the same. Um, You know, they have to choose their locations very carefully because they can't be located within 600 feet of a school. Um, The banking is really, really tough for cannabis businesses because traditional federally regulated banks can't really do business with them. And so a lot of this is like cash transactions or they use alternative banks. And I think because of a lot of these issues, too, a lot of these businesses think that they're not really going to make a lot of money in the first year because the expenses are so great to operate one of these things. The tables won't turn as quickly because people probably will tend to linger. And they're kind of viewing it more as an investment in the future and an investment in normalizing cannabis and kind of making these sort of experiences a regular thing that people can just make a part of their social life. Tell us uh, finally, just at at the end of this, um, a a little bit more about the chef, Andrea Drummer uh, from Lowell Mm -hmm. Farms Cannabis, Cannabis Cafe. Uh, because she's really trying to make this uh, a big thing. And she studied um, at Le Cordon Bleu. So she has a little bit of culinary chops behind her. And and this is really what's going to drive this second half of this business. Yeah, yeah. I spent some time with Andrea um, when I was reporting this story. And like, this has been her dream for a really long time. She um, is a cannabis medical patient um, that she uses cannabis to treat sciatica, um, a back injury that she got from standing on her feet in the kitchen for too long. And she said that cannabis really changed her life. And because of that, she, you know, she really believes in the mission of this. And she wants cannabis cafes to be normalized and she wants them to be legal everywhere. Um, she has run a pop-up and private chef business um, doing private cannabis dinners for people, including celebrities um, like Chelsea Handler. She was on her show and she's been on the Netflix show Cooking on High. Uh, But she's run these private dinners for a long time. So she's very, very experienced in dosing and, you know, in cooking with cannabis and all of these flavor profiles. She studied them in the same way that a sommelier would study wine. Um, And so she is very excited for, for her dream to finally become a reality. And she has been working towards opening this restaurant for many, many years. Maura Judkis, reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this week. Join us on social media 
at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.